Today's passage from Matthew's Gospel is very puzzling. It's puzzling because we're familiar with it, over-familiar with it. We read it and what we read are the old, old stories. There are four episodes in Jesus' life in Matthew 8, verse 23 through to 9.13. There's the calming of the storm, there's the exorcising of the Gadarene, there's the healing of the man who was paralysed and then there's the calling of Matthew the tax collector. But did you notice the puzzling problems in these episodes? Here are four puzzles. Firstly, the disciples' little faith. You see it in verse 25 and verse 26. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. They seemed to have great faith in him. They called out to him in danger. They call him Lord. They put their trust in them and he saved them. Why then does he rebuke them by saying, oh, you of little faith? It can't be a commendation to call them little faith. I mean, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. To say you're of little faith is to say you're faithless. But why does he say they're faithless when they call upon him for salvation? Well, secondly, there's the demon's timing. Look at verse 29, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Uh, the demons don't want to be tormented by the Son of God. Well, that makes sense. But what do they mean before the time? What is the time? What was the torment that they expected and when did they expect it and why do they talk about Jesus doing it before the time? Thirdly, there's the authority of men, which we see in chapter 9 and verse 8 at the end of the healing of the paralytic. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now we can see from Jesus' action that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Now, look at the man. I mean, there he is up walking, taking his bed home. There he has authority to do this. But how do we jump from the Son of Man having authority to do this to all men having authority over sins, is it? Is it all men? Is it all sins? Or have they just been given that authority? Or did we have that authority from Adam? Or why have men got this authority and how can sinners forgive sin and sinners? And then fourthly, what did Jesus mean when he said, go and learn, chapter 9, verse 13, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I, became, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, it, it refers back to Hosea, chapter 6, But what is there to learn? God's preference is for mercy over sacrifice. Well, that's not so difficult to understand. Uh, That's almost in the obvious class. Mercy, forgiveness, is more important than sacrifices. Without mercy, sacrifices wouldn't work. But is he saying that he wants us to be merciful rather than for us to offer sacrifices? What is God's desire in us? Is it for us to be merciful or for him to be merciful? 
Or is there something more in Hosea 6 we should understand? You see, superficially, the whole section is about the impressive Jesus. He has such amazing authority, which is exercised in extraordinary circumstances. We can see that with his authority over the wind and the seas, in verses 23 to verse 27. As with a word, he calms the storm, he calms the sea. It's supernatural, it's extraordinary. Uh, if you are a little bit of a doubter and say, no, it's just good timing, you know, just at the moment he said stop, it was actually the moment it was going to stop anyway, you don't know much about the sea. Because when the storm stops, the sea continues to rise and fall for some time afterwards. It takes a day or so for the sea to turn back to calm. But when Jesus said stop, not only the wind stopped, but the sea calmed immediately. Now, the fishermen, they knew about the sea. They knew this was supernatural. This isn't the way storms stop. They might ease, they might calm, but you're seasick for the next day. But not with Jesus. At Jesus' word, the wind stops and the sea is calm. And so the conclusion in verse 27 you see there, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? And even the winds and the sea obey him. They were amazed at his authority. And this is our response. It's the same as theirs. But then again, that's not much of a compliment, is it? Because these were the men of little faith. Whereas we should be of greater faith than they. I mean, they were amazed, what sort of man is this? But we know what sort of man this is. This is God become man. This is the Christ who rules the world. But if all we draw from the calming of the sea is amazement at Jesus' authority, then we're no further down the track than the men of little faith who are condemned for their lack of faith. And then there's the amazing authority he has over demons. These demons so possessed this poor men that they lived in the tombs, attacking all that passed that way. It's not the men, but the demons who speak. The poor man doesn't have a voice for himself. But yet Jesus commands over the demons. His ability to cast them aside is something that not the men, but the demons are recognised his authority. If in this event we only recognise that Jesus had power over demons, then frankly we're no better than the demons because they recognise that. In fact, they recognise that before he did it. We might have doubted before he did it. When we read the account, we say, oh, he could do it. But we now only reach the stage of demons, which is not really the company we want to keep. In fact, we're no better than the unbelievers. For the unbelieving herdsmen and townsfolk, when they saw it, they were amazed at his authority and begged him to leave. If you are amazed at Jesus calming the storm, you're no better than the unbelieving disciples. If you're amazed at Jesus getting rid of the demons, you're no better than the demons and the unbelieving townsfolk. And then he's an amazing authority over sin and sinners. For he simply declared that the man's sins were forgiven. And lest, like the Pharisees, you think he can't do it, he got the man up to stand up and walk home. No atrophy of the muscles, notice. No 
problem from lying in the bed with no muscle development over all this period of time. He doesn't need physiotherapy to help him walk. He doesn't need lessons in how to walk. Having lain in his bed paralysed for we don't know how long, he just gets up and walks home. Simply at the command of Jesus. This is again supernatural. And that same authority over sins you can see exercised over sinners. For he says to the tax collector, who is the very epitome of sin, he says to the tax collector, Matthew, follow me. And he leaves all and follows him and becomes one of the twelve apostles. Jesus' capacity to forgive sins means he can associate with sinners without contamination in a way that is starkly different from the legalistic Pharisees who would have nothing to do with anything that could possibly be sinful because whatever was sinful would contaminate them. Jesus seems to be able to walk right into the presence of sin and rather than being contaminated by it, he pardons it, he cleanses it. Yet Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for being amazed and disapproving of this. As the Old Testament itself says, God prefers mercy to sacrifice. If we're amazed at Jesus' attitude to the sinners, well, we're no different to his enemies, the Pharisees. If you're amazed at his power over demons, you're no better than the demons, no better than the unbelieving Gentiles. If you're amazed at the stilling of the storm, you're no better than the unbelieving disciples. If you're amazed at the forgiveness of sins, you're no better than the Pharisees. So, yes, superficially, this is the amazing Jesus, but uh, can I encourage you that superficial is not right, that there's something else to do. See, within these episodes in the ministry of Jesus, amazement is not the only response. There is also revealed the human responses of fear and faith. You can see fear in the storming of the sea, this calming of the storm at the sea. The disciples were afraid in verse 26. And again you see it in the demon-possessed man who terrorised the, the local landscape. But it's also there in the response to Jesus so that the marvelling of men in the boat in verse 27 is surely tinged with fear. And the request of the herdsmen of the city folk for Jesus to leave is a response of fear. And the crowd in verse 8, seeing the paralysed man walk home, was one of being afraid, even as they glorified God. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Uh, that is, the fallen, dangerous world in which we live can cause fear in all manner of things. You go to the doctor with a lump and fear. You, you don't want him to say what it is that you are already afraid to hear. You, you go out on a wild storm and on a boat and you should fear. Fear is a natural and proper response to the dangers of this world. If you're as poor a swimmer as me, you'll always fear in the surf. Why, I've even been dumped in Coogee. It's possible. 
If you're not very good at something, you've got lots to be afraid of. But the fallen dangerous world that can create such fear is nothing compared to the fear of the man who can overcome this fallen world, who can heal with a word, who can calm with a word, who can exorcise with a word. If you're afraid of the demons, if you're afraid of sin, if you're afraid of sickness, be really afraid of the man who is so much more powerful than all of these things. And yet, within the passage, there is this other response of faith. Trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, relying upon Jesus, depending upon Jesus. But what kind of faith is it? We see faith in the disciples' prayer to Jesus in the storm, but Jesus sees that as, as no faith, as not proper faith. The demons had faith in Jesus that he could and would torment them. They believed and, as James says, shuddered. Oh, they believed all right. But then that's not the faith that we would want to emulate. You don't go to demons to find out how to believe in God. Jesus certainly saw faith in people who carried the man with the paralysis. For we read in chapter 9, verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on the bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven you. It's interesting here that it wasn't just the man's faith, it was their faith. Faith can be expressed on behalf of other people. Whenever you pray, you are expressing faith. And whenever you pray for somebody else, you're expressing faith on their behalf, for them. We can pray for other people and God will listen to our prayers for them. We can bring others to the Saviour and pray for them, like bringing our children to the Lord. Now, we're back to the point on issue here. The response of faith, for we also see faith in Matthew, though it's not called that, but Matthew's response of leaving his tax office to follow Jesus is the response of faith, of trusting Jesus. But the whole passage sets for us the question about what was Jesus doing? Why was he stilling storms or exercising demons or healing people or sitting with sinners or calling tax collectors? Why did he do these things? What was he doing? And why does Matthew record them? If you're going to record the gospel, why record these episodes, and especially in such a puzzling fashion? Notice firstly that what Jesus did were the things of God. The centurion we saw last week, earlier in chapter 8, has said it. Look back to chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9, same page there. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say go, to one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. The centurion knew the authority of his word, the authority that was absolute. He knew that his authority resided with the emperor but his authority was still great and powerful sufficient to direct the men under his charge and so he recognized in Jesus that his authority rested in God but was powerful and real Jesus was doing the works of God the master of the sea 
the master of the demons, the master over sin and darkness and sickness. But what was it all about? Well, think again for our little puzzles. The disciples' little faith was that they expected to perish in the storm. But Jesus was with them. How could they perish in the storm if Jesus was with them? You see, the question is not, could he still the storm? Of course he could. He had the power to do that. But rather, why wouldn't he still the storm? You see, why would God send his son into the world to save the world and establish his kingdom, allow his son to perish in a storm? Jesus had a, an appointment, a, a destiny at Golgotha, at Calvary, for the death and crucifixion and resurrection. You think God's going to let him drown in a storm en route? I mean, that's a ridiculous idea. That is an absurd idea. If Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, there was no way he was going to perish in a storm before he got to Calvary. Yeah, they called him Lord. They turned to him in their terror, but they didn't believe he was the Christ come into the world to save mankind. He didn't really have faith that he was the Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour of all. They didn't yet understand who he was or why he'd come. If they had real faith, they would have said, it's okay, we don't need to wake him up. There's no way we're going to drown. We have the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God. We have the, the, the one who is sacrificing in Jerusalem. We've got the one who's on his way to Calvary. He's in the boat. There's no way this boat's going to drown. We don't have to wake him up. If they really believed who Jesus was, there was no danger. They were never in danger. Similarly, the demons torment before the time. You see, we read in 1 John chapter 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil knew this, the demons knew this. This was the reason he'd come. This is what he'd come into the world to do. He hadn't come into the world to steal storms. He'd come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. They knew why he'd come and they were not expecting him yet. For the great conflict of the cross and resurrection lay ahead. The establishment of the kingdom of God and the judgment of the world lay ahead. And they were astonished that he'd come to them early. He'd arrived over on their shore and was going to deal with them before the time. They were afraid that he would start early with them. Why have you come to torment us before the time? We know the time's coming, but this isn't the time. Their problem was not that he was going to torment them. Their problem was the timing of the torment. Similarly, the God-given authority to men to forgive sins, it comes from the Old Testament. It's a reference to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. The one who on the judgment day is given by God all authority to rule over all nations for all time. He is the one who indeed is the judge of the living and the dead. That is, when it comes to the judgment at the end of the world, it's not the angels who are going to judge the universe. It's the Son of Man. It's the man who is going to judge the universe. For the kingdom of God is the kingdom of man. For God gives to the man all authority to rule the universe. 
we know we're at Christmas, God became man. At Easter, God didn't stop being man. God continued to be man. See, we believe in the resurrection of the dead man to new life as the resurrected man. The person who rules the universe now is a man, a Jewish man. If you're an anti-Semitic, you've got a problem because you've got to deal with a man who rules the universe who happens to be Jewish. So can I suggest you change your anti-Semitism very quickly? There is no place for that kind of anti-Semitism in heaven because in heaven the man who rules the universe is Jewish. It is that man who rules the universe. And so he is the one who forgives sins and he invites us to sit with him in judgment over the world and over the angels. It's to the Son of Man who by his death and resurrection brings forgiveness to others and gives us the gospel whereby even in this world we can declare the forgiveness of sins. And when you come to church, you confess your sins and the minister will say something along the line that God has given authority to his minister to declare to his people when they repent the forgiveness of their sins. That we rule with Christ in declaring forgiveness. For as we preach the gospel and as people respond to that gospel message, they are bound in their sins because they reject the message or they are released from their sins because they accept the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we bring forgiveness of sins in the declaration of the gospel and we will share with Christ in the ruling of the world. For Jesus said, I came to call sinners. In all these events, you see, Jesus is entering into our fallen world, our evil world, the world of a disordered creation of storms and earthquakes and of sickness and of death, a world of disordered people, a man possessed who lives amongst the dead, of people paralysed and sinful. And as God promised in Hosea, the day is coming when he will restore everything in the resurrection power. He promised that he would find the nation wanting in their desire for religion and religious practices instead of the reality of mercy and forgiveness. But the trouble with religion, even the religion of sacrifices for forgiveness, is people focus on the sacrifice instead of the forgiveness that comes through the sacrifice. And so provided we've done the sacrifices, provided we've gone to church, provided we've said the prayer, we've done nothing. It is God who gives mercy and forgiveness and pardon as he chooses. Jesus was fulfilling God's promise to come to his people, seeking to save and to rescue the lost and the wandering while opposing the self-righteous. And so the tax collector is the symbol of the true Christian. Now, for you and I, that's no big deal. You see, this is the trouble with the old, old story. We're so familiar with it. We actually think it's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's kind of nice that the tax collector should be the one who is in the kingdom and the self-righteous, pompous Pharisee should be excluded. It kind of fits our Christianized judgment. <laughs> but friends... If I were to say in the first century the tax collector is the epitome of what a true member of the Messianic community was, 
people would shake their heads in horror. In fact, they did shake their heads in horror with Jesus. He sits amongst sinners and tax collectors. How can it be? If he's truly a man of God, why does he hang around with that rabble? But the tax collector is the epitome of the gospel because he was a traitor to the nation Israel and he was corrupt and greedy materialist. And therefore the only way for him in the kingdom of heaven was mercy, pardon, forgiveness, which is what Christianity is about. It's about mercy, pardon, forgiveness. It's not about being good, moral, religious. It's not about climbing our way to heaven. Hopeless cause that is, you'll never get there, my friends. No, no, it's about God sending his son into the world to bring mercy, pardon and forgiveness to people who never deserve to get into heaven. It's the exact reverse of what our community still believes. George Street is packed with Pharisees. Go and check them out. Just stand there and ask them, what's the way to heaven? What do Christians believe is the way to heaven? How do Christians think you are saved? And person after person walking up and down George Street, if they cared to stop and tell you, they'll all say by being religious, by being good, by being moral, by going to church, by reading your Bible. By... But it's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with God having mercy and pardon and forgiveness on us sinners. There was nothing good about the tax collectors. They bribed their way into the favour of the Romans so that they could collect exorbitant taxes from their fellow Israelites in order to line their own pockets as well as to pay the Romans to continue to oppress Israel. See, they're not tax collectors like our tax collectors. Our tax collectors are public servants hidden behind some office, behind a computer screen, punking in numbers and, and really not knowing us other than by numbers and not even by names. It's an honourable profession to be a tax collector in Australia, though you wouldn't mention it at a dinner party, but it's a generally... But the ancient world was not like that. The ancient world, you bribed the, the Romans to let you be the tax collector because there was so much profit in tax collecting and you set the level of tax, whatever level you could get away with. And when you got the money, you gave half of it to the Romans, who would then pay for the soldiers to oppress the people, and half of it you'd keep for yourself. And the more taxes you raised, the richer you got. It was a system of terrible corruption and of great treachery to its own people. There was nothing good, you can say, about a tax collector. But this one, this one left his office, left his money, left the authority and followed the one who had authority to forgive sins. For Jesus came to call sinners. For Jesus came fulfilling what God had promised, love, mercy. Sure, Jesus was impressive when he did those incredible miracles. But that's not what Jesus was about. It's not what he came into the world to do. And that's what makes him so relevant to you and me. You see, the still storm on the Galilean Sea 2,000 years ago is not much comfort to the thousands of people whose loved ones have died at storms in sea since then. That he raised a man who was paralysed is not much comfort to the thousands of people who have been paralysed since that time. It may and does give us grounds for praying to him, knowing that he's that powerful, but that's not what he came into the world to do, to still a storm. 
That's not what he came into the world to save one paralysed man. Rather, he came to overcome evil for all time by his death and resurrection so that we sinners, and folks, that's you, that's me, we sinners who find, can find forgiveness, pardon and mercy because that's what we all need in every age, in every day. If you're simply impressed by his miracles, you've missed the point of Jesus altogether. For the demons and the unbelievers and the disciples of little faith knew and were amazed and were very impressed by his miracles. What we are to see in the works of Jesus is not a superhero like a cartoon character that our children might like. What we're to see in the works of Jesus is the saviour of the world who's coming to bring God's mercy to a fallen sinful world. Who's come to bring mercy, forgiveness, pardon to me and to you. And that's really worth having. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, his resurrection. We thank you for his life. We thank you for the way in which he walked in this world and was so different and yet one of us. We thank you, Father, that by his life and his teaching, he pointed and explained the great work he was doing by his death and resurrection. And we thank you, Father, that we can find in him our forgiveness, our pardon, that we might be able to call you our Father, that we might be raised up with him to rule the world with him in your kingdom. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.